Welcome to the Deeply Rooted Parent Podcast. I'm your host, Brent Lamborn, an outdoor educator known for inspiring parents to find connections once again with their children. Join me as I have stimulating conversations with experts in their fields, all with a dash of nature connection. Are you ready to feel revitalized, recommitted, and to regain a sense of love for your children? If so, then grab a seat around the campfire and let's explore together. Thank you so much for, for joining us today. Before we get into the content of, of this uh, time together, I was wondering if you could just introduce yourselves and uh, the work that you've been doing. Hi, I'm Frances Carlson. I currently work as an administrator at a two-year college here in Atlanta, Georgia, down in the southeastern part of the U.S. <clears throat> Excuse me. Prior to this current job, though, I worked as an early childhood college instructor for I don't know, 12 or 15 years. And then prior to that, I worked as a center administrator for the majority of my career, about 20 years that I spent doing that, where I had tons and tons of hands-on experience with just kids all over the country and, and all over the world. And then I've raised three children of my own, um, twin boys who will be 30 in August, and my daughter will be 27 at the end of this month. And I have a dog, and I love to camp and kayak. So my um, professional work, though, why I'm here today to talk with you, Brent, is because of my book entitled Big Body Play that our National Association for the Education of Young Children published in 2011. I also have a book mm-hmm. they published prior to Big Body Play called Essential Touch. And it was from the work on Essential Touch that I really became familiar with the role of roughhousing and children's development. And that interest then resulted in in my book, Big Body Play. Yeah, when I thought of creating a podcast on Big Body Play, or um, I was just I was just blown away with all these different ideas I had because I am a great proponent for a Big Body Play. I think it's completely natural and to not work with it and to flow with it is, um, well, to put put intensely a crime against children, I think they really, really need it in life. And so when I was doing research, um, your book came up and I was like, oh, yes, <laughs> someone I need to talk to. <laughs> so I'm so happy that um, we were able to, to connect and talk um, about probably one of my favorite subjects, to be fair, with, with children. Right. You know what? It, um, it's funny that you say it's that it's like a crime against children because when I do training on big body play, I try to help participants understand that there are very few things that as animals we do instinctually without being taught. There's just a handful of things that we just know to do from birth. And roughhousing is one of those things. So to me, denying children access to roughhousing is equivalent to denying children access to sleep or food or water or elimination. We don't, we would never say to a child, no, you can't, go to sleep or, I mean, that would be punitive, right? To deny child food or water or access to a bathroom, but to deny them roughhousing, I think people view as kind of different. And in my mind, it's not different at all. It's something that we do because we're animals. We need it to grow normally and to deny a child that access is criminal. I agree. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I think maybe it has a stigma because parents with with siblings and we'll touch on this a little bit later because i have a question for you regarding siblings um i think parents see their siblings actually fighting 
And so they have put that into their brains that rough and tumble play is what they view their kids fighting with, which is actually fighting, right. <laughs> not rough and tumble play, because there's very, very big difference between the two. There are. Um, so I guess to to level the playing field, because um, we both know, but maybe the listeners don't know, can you just explain and talk about the difference between like violent play, like actual fighting, and big body play or like cub play or all the names that it has? Okay. Well, there, there really are three kind of three things to look for in children's play to determine if it's big body play, which means that it's okay. Doesn't mean that you don't need to supervise it. It just means that it's appropriate and that we need to try to keep it going um, or support them in keeping it going as long as we can. There's also three things to look for that would let us know that children are fighting, which means we intervene immediately and try to keep any harm from being done and then help them mitigate whatever circumstances led to the fight um, and help them get back to a more appropriate type of play. So for big body play, what you want to look for first are the children's faces. You want to see if they're smiling and laughing. Um, researchers call that the play face because researchers like to make things sound more complicated than they are. It's our children smiling and laughing. That's the first thing that you look for. Um, that is funny to me, right? I'm like the play face. Uh, what is that? Yeah. You're smiling. You're laughing. You can, you can tell by looking at me that I'm engaged, that I'm here because of my own free will, which is the second thing that we look for. Do children seem to be engaged in this opportunity freely or does one seem to be controlling another child's ability to leave? And then the third thing to look for is do children keep returning to the activity over and over and over again, or do they run away as soon as possible? So the motivation behind the play is, is kind of what I'm getting at there. If children are smiling, they're freely return to it as many times as they can over and over again. Those are the three prongs that would typify big body play. But if you see a child who's crying or their face is in a grimace, Another child has them pinned to the ground. And as soon as the child gets up, they run away. That was fighting. Yeah. There's just no place about it because the motivation there was not collaboration like you see in big body play. It was control. It was one child who absolutely was trying to dominate or control another one through physical force. And the reason that I think I agree with you, parents, have trouble discerning one from the other is they're both so loud, right? <laughs> yes. Sometimes, I mean, I have a dog, my dog, I don't have any grandkids yet, but my, uh, one of my sons has a dog. My daughter has a dog. I have a dog. And when all the dogs are in our yard, it sounds like the world is coming to an end. And sometimes my husband will say, doesn't somebody need to go out there and make them stop? And I'm like, ah, you know better. Like, you know better. Look at them. And they are roughhousing just like children do. They're nipping at each other. They're running around. They're barking. But it is so incredibly loud that we all just want to have a nervous breakdown. And that's the point that I think, oh, yeah, that's what it is. That's the part that makes any parent's hair stand up on the back of their neck, right? Because you hear that level of intensity and none of us have the instinct to just ignore what sounds like it could be a horrible situation. We want to make sure everybody's okay. So we rush in and try to make it stop being loud so we can determine that nobody's hurt. And I think our intentions are good, right? We want to make sure nobody's hurt. 
what I would hope parents would do is acknowledge that just because it's loud doesn't mean it's dangerous. And if you're worried, then get close enough to observe what's taking place and then look for those three things. Smiles, willing participation, stay at it as long as possible. Or do you see that grimace, that red face, tear stained, pinned to the ground, trying to get up? Yes, then you need to intervene because that's not appropriate in anybody's world. That sounds like fighting. And I think anybody would call that fighting. Mm -hmm. And I think like, well, one of the reasons why I love big body play is that it teaches children self-regulation. Yes. And when they're first starting, yeah, there's going to be those interactions where the big body play becomes fighting because they get too amped up. And then all of a sudden, when kids face, here in Canada at least, faces in the snow. <laughs> um, but the next time they do the rough and tumble play or the big body play, it becomes a little bit less. Mm -hmm. And then eventually there's, there's wrestling. So I think we, we nip it in the butt way too soon and don't let it actually do the what's supposed to be teaching the children in the first place. Yes. I mean, that's, that's a perfect way to describe it. And I think that what we see in the growth continuum of big body play is what we see in anything children are trying to learn how to do well, right? Like tie their shoes or stack blocks in a structure that doesn't collapse. And that the first few attempts when they don't really know their own strength or how to manipulate their hands and control their body or even know how strong they are, you will see those types of, and I think of those as kind of accidental injuries versus intentional aggression, which is you took the swing away from me. So I'm going to chase you down and pummel you until you scream. It's, it's, a, mm -hmm. it's yeah. not an intentional infraction, but often children don't know their own strength. But the beauty of the play style is that's the best way for children to learn, for children to learn how strong they are how resilient they are, how much bigger they are than another child and to hold back. So they can play that way successfully in that learning to hold back is possibly one of the most important benefits through life to know that you're possibly the best one in the room, but you realize it's a team effort and that you don't need to be the strongest or the best right now. You need to hold back and let somebody else share the limelight and to learn that as a three or four year old and then know how to do that through the rest of your life is perfect for me. Yeah, likewise. It's, it, uh, it's A-OK -okay over in Camp Brent. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because it's, um, you know, and for children who don't rough house well, and I have talked to parents before who say, well, my child, you know, I'm sorry, I just can't let my son. He just he doesn't do it well. Somebody always gets hurt. The silver lining to that parent is the child who doesn't rough play well is only going to learn how to do it well through rough play. There's no other way yeah. to learn those lessons. However, they need a lot of coaching in order to do it well. And sometimes the play that children get to do at home reinforces some of those bad habits. And I say this because I used to rough house with my dad when I was a kid. And my dad would let me yeah. like pummel him and hurt him and he would laugh it off. That's not the best way for parents to roughhouse with their kids. A parent should roughhouse with their child the same way a mother dog would roughhouse with a young pup, which is that if the young pup hurts the mother, the mother yells really loudly and then backs away and won't engage with the baby, the puppy anymore because the puppy hurt the mother. 
I sometimes see parents roughhouse with their kids and they let their kids be too strong, too heavy handed, and they laugh. What they mm. should do is a really is good yell. Point. You know, the human equivalent of a yelp, like, oh man, that hurt. That was too rough. We're going to have to take a break now. And then when we wrestle again, use a gentler hand, like, you know, and maybe model for them. What does that mean? But if your child's roughhousing with you and slaps you, you absolutely should let them know that was too much. That was too hard. It hurt Mm -hmm. so that they can learn their own strength and how to hold back. So that um, that coaching, sometimes that modeling for appropriate rough play is easier done at home than it is in a classroom with teachers who are providing out of home care for other people's children. It seems a little more natural at home when it's parents helping their kids learn to rough house well. Yeah. Yeah, that's such a good point. I didn't really even think about that in terms of us as as parents. I think like there's I don't even know how many parenting books that there are thousands at this point. But I think there's just one chapter and it just says role modeling. Right. <laughs> so the one sentence, please role right. model. Um, because it always comes back to to how we are with the children. Um and if you are yeah, if you are big body playing with your with your children, you should establish those boundaries and uh, guides for them so that when they are doing that with their friends, they're, they're not labeled as like the aggressive bully one they don't want to play with just because they didn't learn. Right. Properly. Right. And you know, for children who are already struggling with kind of those societal um, skills, like reading body language well and being able to understand other people's facial expressions and the nuance behind the words they say and, all of those things that make people really savvy social animals. Um, you know, children learn those through roughhousing because roughhousing is not verbal. It's all body. It is facial expressions and how your body feels not only in relation to how fast you can run or how quickly you can climb up that tree, but like for children who are, wrestling that's how one child might know that it's time to get up because they feel the other child child's body tense and they know that that means the child's uncomfortable they understand that unspoken nonverbal communication which is another kind of mm-hmm. indicator that that child's going to be very savvy as an adult because they've learned the most effective way to communicate with others, which is not verbally, but non-verbally. So, you know, again, big body play allows for all of that development, the signaling, the gestures, the facial expressions. Um, I don't know if you play a lot of games in Canada, like we played growing up where like you play keep away, where you throwing the ball over somebody's head, trying to keep it away from them. Part of the success of that game is where your eyes go. And if the person in the middle can read the person with the ball's face, they know where to reach for the ball because they can tell by the facial expression where the ball's about to be thrown. I was never that good at it. Um, It took me a long time. And my, my brother and our next door neighbor, Danny, just, they could play keep away with me for hours and keep the ball away from me because I wasn't, I wasn't good at it. I, it took me, you know, a while to kind of figure out, oh, wait, if I look at them, how their bodies turned, like how they're holding their arms, what their face looks like, I can figure out where they're about to throw the ball and have a better chance of stealing it from them. So um, I'm still not as good at it as some people, that nonverbal communication, but um, 
I acknowledge what an important part of overall life success that skill is. And I appreciate how well big body play helps children master that skill. Yeah, I think um, that when, when people think of big body play, they think of um, fighting. So like we were mentioning earlier, or maybe, okay, rough housing, but in like a, a way of like, um, often we said like, oh, the boys are testing their strength to find like who's right. stronger. Um, so I think big body play is either like aggressive or in people's eyes, it's used to determine strength where, yeah, it, it totally does. But there's such a huge impact on all the different developmental mains that a child has, um, like their social, emotional. That's <laughs> what I view rough right, and right. more. Um, than, than the physical development and like the cognitive like um, abilities that come with um, big body play. It's just extraordinary. You know, I'm, when you say that, I'm reminded of some four-year-olds that I saw, I was observing on a playground several years ago. They were, there were seven or eight of them, all four years old. And they decided that they wanted to play Duck, Duck, Goose, which I think everybody plays, right? Where you go around and tap and then you pick and then yeah. whoever is the goose has to chase you and try to catch you anyway. So this playground was pretty big and they wanted to play a game. So they first set, you know, kind of sat in a circle and then they realized that they needed to set some boundaries because without boundaries, you could chase somebody for an hour and not catch them if the other child was fast enough. So they came back to the circle and they're like, okay, if we're going to play this, we need to have like what's out, what's out of the game zone like what are the, what's the parameter basically so these four girls plotted mm -hmm. out the parameter for their game decided what home base was they had to problem solve they had to negotiate they had to communicate they had to all propose solutions until they agreed and then they had to implement their solution so that their game would work successfully and I thought, I don't know that there is much more important cognitive exercise for children to go through than one that they're highly motivated to achieve because they really want to play this game. And I don't know that I've ever seen a group of my colleagues come to agreement quite as quickly about how to solve a problem so that they could get back to doing what they wanted to do, which was play their game. It was phenomenal to me how quickly they problem solved and then implemented their solution and they got right back to their game and then it worked. They came up with a, a solution that addressed all of the needs of their play. And then they played for probably 30 or 45 more minutes with the rules that they put in place, the boundaries that they, um, that they established. So, you know, the cognitive growth is astounding if we pay attention to what it is children have to do to navigate this play, to keep it going well for as long as they want to play, which is as long as we'll let them. I've never seen children long-term become exhausted from big body play. I've seen children want to take breaks, but as soon as they're rested, they want to go right back yeah. to it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the, I just love, I teach um, kindergartens as well as school age kids and then some, some teens occasionally. And the difference between when, when cognitively like the uh -huh. games with rules really, really comes online. You can, it's a fan, it's just beautiful to watch. Be like, well, what should the rules be? And, and then all of a sudden it's like you're right. in a board meeting and everyone has a viewpoint 
and then this like game comes and we do one round and then we come back and we debrief it and the kids are awesome be like well that really didn't work right. let's fix this and uh, Ken touches on one of the, the aspects that I wanted to te- um, like ask you about and that is if if children are going to engage in big body play either at the home or at the early learning center I don't think it's allowed in schools unfortunately um, much to my my heartbreak right, right. <laughs> um, but what are some some rules that we should put in place or or guide the kids to bring up for themselves that should be in place so that no one gets injured? Um, that's such a good question. And actually, some of the best rules for guiding children's roughhousing, children develop themselves, um, which is also another cognitive exercise in developing phrasing the rule. If the children are old enough, able to write it down, someone who is the rule, you know, writer, Um, so that they can be posted in whatever area children are allowed to to play roughly in. I have seen kind of a common rule for programs that allow wrestling is that children can wrestle only from a kneeling position. And that allows a little more um, size and weight differential (laughs) kind of handicapping so that children, when you wrestle from a kneeling position, it equalizes the strength and the size kind of right off the bat. Um, I've also seen a rule that regardless of the play children are engaged in, there can be no no contact with heads. Heads and necks are off limits. So, so and I've seen people yeah. have like a, a trace a child's body and then highlight the area of the body where it's okay to, to roughhouse, which is basically from the shoulders down to about the hips. And that's it. So nothing below the groin lower legs, nothing below your hips and the back, nothing above your shoulders. Um, Just to eliminate accidental injury and also just, you know, because heads are really sensitive in some cultures and some people's heads are just sensitive. Otherwise, they just really don't like being touched on their on their head. And I know here in the South, it's very common for people to touch children's heads and for children to touch each other's heads. So that's a common rule in programs to try to keep the play um, legit and keep it from devolving or having an accidental, you know, tap on the head that feels more like a slap and then a retaliation is just to avoid head tags at all, all tags between the shoulders and the waist. I've even seen it put that way. Shoulders to waist is where you can tag. Um, I have a friend Patrick, who teaches in a program outside San Francisco in California, and he worked with a group of school-age children, young school-age children, who roughhoused often, and then he noticed that the roughhousing was quickly kind of devolving into fighting and kind of an out-of-control mess. Kids were getting hurt, and he was concerned. So he brought the kids together and said, this is what I'm seeing, and I want you to play this way, but it's not working. What do you propose we do? And the children came up with some of their own rules. One of the rules that they came up with, and I remember Patrick telling me the story. I thought it was so great. One of Patrick's children in his care said, somebody needs to wear the striped shirt, which meant a referee, right? We need somebody who will referee our play and call call a stop when they feel like we need a break or if something appears to be kind of getting out of control or, you know, maybe we just need a break. Like just go to your corners take a break, get a sip of water, and then come mm-hmm. back. Um, that really stuck with me, how acutely the children 
sense that having someone who can maintain order is important, but they wanted it to be one of them. They didn't say, Patrick, you need to wear the striped shirt. They just said, somebody like one of us needs to play that role to help mediate the play and call a break when needed. Um, He did go on to say that once they made their rules and then they posted their rules and that they got back to their wrestling like they did every day. And they went then several months without any incidents at all. And a lot of times the injuries in roughhousing are inadvertent. You know, it it is accidental. It's still not because aggression was the intent. And I know that often children will not even let anybody know they were hurt because they know that if they cry, some adult's going to come in and say, no, you have to stop. See, I knew somebody would get hurt. This is too rough. So kids will sometimes get hurt and not, you know, not let anybody know because they don't, you know, they don't want the adults to come in and make them stop. So, um, you know, and I think other children can learn from that experience as well. If you roll over on top of me and I start crying, then you'll learn that that was too hard. If I start crying and you don't get off me, then that's an issue at that point. Then somebody needs to intervene because I'm crying and you won't get up. That's when the person in the striped shirt calls time and we get up and then maybe have a, a coaching session about um, pressure and applying pressure and making sure the person that you're wrestling with can still breathe. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, underneath the, the pine trees where I teach the kids uh-huh. make like a wrestling ring. This is before uh-huh. COVID situation and uh, where we can be closer, but so they developed the strategy of like, we need to know instead of having you know, like a tea, like a tree to go touch. It's like, we need to know who is playing and who is not because it was kind of spilling out and people were like, I wasn't playing. I don't like to be pushed. Why right. did you push me in? So we were having some issues with that. I was like, you guys figure this out. And so they thought about it. And I was just, I was teaching a kid to carve and I looked up and they had moved the pine needles in such a way that they had made themselves a ring. And they were like, Brent, we figured it out. And I was like, please explain. I'm like, kind of like getting really excited at this plan because like they've made a ring. Like how amazing is that? They're like, so if we're in the ring, free game. If we're outside the ring, we cannot be touched. And I was like, nice. And that was, that was it. Right. No Beautiful problem solving. We have an issue. We need to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Here's our proposed solution. Let's put it into action and see if it works. Yeah. And it did. Four-year-olds are brilliant, though. I've I've known so many brilliant four-year-olds in my in my career, and some of them now are, you know, in their (laughs) forties or fifties. So so I've been doing this for a long time, and I'm so curious about what their lives have been like because they had so much skill already just as a four-year-old. So impressive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, it's so interesting how how it arises and. Like I could have just went in and said, okay, well, we need a system. Let's make a ring or let's get a rope and put a rope, but giving them that sense of control of their own area and not being that like heavy handed adult being like, well, it's getting too rough. Um, You have have to like shut it down. Now there are times it's, I've been doing it for so long and been so like attuned to my groups that you can almost like I, I call it 30 seconds too late right. <laughs> where the energy of the play is getting 
too intense where you know there's going to be like an accidental like push too hard or um like a fist is going to like fly out from nowhere um and so it's just interesting how you can get this sense of the dynamical energy that's happening within the the play and if it's getting too aggressive or you know it's going to get too aggressive just kind of like giving them a pre-breather um so they can go back in it's like um, it's 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 lovely that way so i want to talk to you about um one of my one of the the vehicles that i teach consent with is with rough and tumble play and so it's such a social emotional area that children need to learn but before that i wish to just ask about what's your opinion about uh, girls in rough and tumble play? Um, I was a huge rough and tumbler myself as a child. So when I started to do the work on big body play, I was, of course, curious about what the research showed about girls and rough housing, because the perception is that this is the way that boys play, right? Like I think there's even a, yeah. a kind of a common mm -hmm. acknowledgement that that's what boys do and it's whatever. Um, but it's interesting to me that some research that Michelle Tanuk, who I believe is Canadian, did several years ago where she had boys and girls both, and I believe these were school-age children or, you know, young, maybe kindergartners, um, <clears throat> that she had them in a room like an auditorium where they could be viewed through one-way glass, but the children didn't know that anybody could see them. And while the children thought that they were not being viewed, the boys and girls both roughed house in equal proportion, just going great guns, like is our experience with children, right? That it was the, that there were some children who didn't want to, but for the ones who did, it was boys and girls alike. There was no differentiation based on gender. But as soon as an adult came into the room, the girls all went and sat down. So the vital yeah. connection with roughhousing is something that children learn from us after birth. The inclination to play roughly is an animal instinct, boy or girl. And the beauty to me with girls who are encouraged and allowed to play roughly with their bodies is it's a really organic way for girls to learn how strong they are and how brave they are and that they they are courageous enough to take chances with their body and be successful. I don't think, and I know you've seen this because you've worked with children um, for a while already, that, that look of pride on a child's face when they're able to navigate a physical task that they thought was going to be too hard, like climbing up on with a boulder yeah. and then standing there. Like, oh, I, I did it, like I got up here. And I think for boys, we encourage that already. So boys just get to have that feel good a lot more often. Girls are not typically as encouraged to do it. But when they do it, they are as strong and as capable and as coordinated and as courageous and feel all the same sense of affirmation for their accomplishments as boys do. Another thing about the girls play that's interesting to me, um, not when men work with young children, but when women work with young children, um, one of the one of the downsides 
to women working with children is that women tend to not be as physically active working with children as men tend to be. And I'm trying to avoid stereotypes. I'm not saying that all men run around for hours with kids and that women don't, but typically women tend to be less physically active with young children than men do. That's mm-hmm. the research claim. And it's my own personal experience as well. Mine as well. Girls, by the time they're four years old, are starting to set the activity level in their own lives that they'll pretty much carry with them the rest of their lives. By four years old, the girls are starting to kind of develop how active they're going to be for the rest of their lives. When girls are in a setting where the female is the teacher and that female teacher is not active, the girls become equally inactive, thereby setting a lifetime of inactivity in motion. So when I do training on big body play and my audiences are almost always women, I really, really try to relate to them how important it is that as women that they move often with children, especially those girl children whose tendency to be active might be starting to diminish if they're with women who aren't very active. And that we really have a mandate to be as active as possible so that the girl children we work with will maintain a high activity level throughout their lives as well. So, you know, when men work with children, though, with girls especially, I think there's another benefit that happens. Not only do girls benefit from that huge amount of running around that men tend to do, but when girls work in classrooms with men as their caregivers, they get to kind of practice that dynamic with a man who is viewing them not as an object, but as a strong, courageous, capable, fearless human. It's a dynamic Mm -hmm. women might not get to experience often from men in their lives who, in my experience, tend to treat little girls as dolls. Look how pretty you are. Look how cute you are. Be careful. You're going to mess up the ribbons mama put into your hair. Be careful. Be careful. That, you know, for some girls, that may be all that they ever have to relate to as themselves is I'm pretty and I need to make sure I don't mess my clothes up. This is a perfect opportunity for a girl to have both men and women really value her for how strong she is. Um, how courageous she is. Wow, I just watched you. I just watched you on that rope ladder and you let go with one hand and swung to grab the other one and you did it. Like you did it. You were hanging there by one hand and you never let go. You're so strong. And from a woman to that girl child, that reaffirmation is good. From a man to that girl child, I think that reaffirmation can help set a precedent for life that the girl as a woman will expect men to value her as strong and capable, not just pretty and takes good care of her wardrobe. So, so many benefits um, that really are gender specific with how men and women can work with girls and use rough housing for um, a lot of really optimal development for that young child, that young girl child. Yeah, I totally agree with that like I want to do like a big push for males in education because when I did my early child education I was in the intensive because I already had a degree Mm -hmm. and so there was 28 of us and three of them were male right Uh, four of them were male sorry including me and then in the two-year program 
I think there was, oh, I think it was like 200 people enrolled and four of them were male. And the overall percentage of males in early child education um, is so abysmally low. It's like less than 5%, I right. believe, was the last time I saw the quote. And yeah, we have such an impact on the children um, between, yeah, just the, the gender spectrum. So it, like it, we have such an important role to play um, based on where we're at on that and the empowering that we can do. Um, I really, yeah, I really hear those words and wish, yeah, wish more um, females did play with, with children in, in that more robust way. Uh, in my experience, they, they do not, um, which I wonder if that's just because they have been socialized not to. Um, but I wonder if how we can get that conversation started around female educators and mums right, to right. engage in that type of play as well. You know what I've encouraged, that's a really good point, is how do we empower women who don't feel maybe confident enough in their own bodies to now feel confident enough to lead a group of young children in how to use their bodies or using their bodies in big ways. And I've often encouraged a female teacher, if you're not comfortable running across the yard, at least throw a ball for the children to face mm -hmm. and then bring back to you and then throw it again. Do something. You can participate in activity without being 100% active participant yourself, if that makes any sense. You can still encourage a lot of big, robust play without being a bystander. You just don't yeah. have to be as full-blown as the children are. And again, in some settings, you wouldn't be allowed to. There are settings that will allow children to roughhouse, but the adults are not allowed to roughhouse with the children. And in those cases, it's important that you still model a high level of physical activity yourself, not necessarily wrestling with the children, but not being afraid to jump around, you know, not being afraid to, to use your body yourself, climb up on some of those boulders yourself and see what that's like. I, I don't know. I personally never outgrew that love in childhood of being outdoors. And I climbed a tree when I was in Winnipeg that I later found out I could have gotten arrested for climbing and I felt bad, but um, it was a beautiful <laughs> Russian olive and it was just there and I just climbed it. <laughs> so yeah, I couldn't resist. And then later my friend Ron was like, you need to get down. And I said, Ron, you said it was okay. And he said, well, I didn't think you'd actually do it. <laughs> you called him out. Yeah. Well, um, I, a tree, I can climb. I'm still going to climb that tree. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, and I realized there are people who didn't develop that body confidence in early childhood. They still don't have that body confidence and they, they feel, ashamed maybe or they're afraid that they'll be perceived as awkward or clumsy or you know even though I think the beauty of working with children generally is that we don't feel judged so I would hope that adults aren't using that as a way to not be active afraid of how children would perceive them I don't think children care if we're clumsy or geeky when we <laughs> jump around I think they just think it's fun mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we, we encounter that barrier when we're singing songs with kindergartens. As adults, we come in with like, well, my voice might not sound the best. Or maybe I'll, I'll mess up and not remember all the words. And here the kindergartens are like, song, 
right. They don't care as long as there's some type of melody. They like do not care what your voice sounds mm-hmm. like. School age might call you out a little bit, but kindergartens are just like I would just love the musical um, flow of it. It's so, uh, <laughs> it's so so good. So um, yeah. So if we take in um, sort of what we've been speaking about in terms of the, the physicality and setting up rules and um, learning about our bodies when the me too movement came and a lot of shadows were exposed, which I'm so happy that they were, right. I immediately just, we need rough and tumble play in all schools. And I'll tell you a little story on why I think that is um, I love when we have mixed genders and we are, wrestling i think that's the greatest like genders of all spectrum like it doesn't matter right because it teaches consent so this one time um four kids were wrestling one of them um was a girl and three of them were a boy boys and so they were wrestling and usually this girl just like just wrecks them like she was insanely strong she still is insanely strong i still teach her and i was like you're like i don't you must just be a pure muscle it was insane and, but this one day, I think she was just tired. And so the boys won and ended up being on top of her. And so she said, stop. The boys got up immediately and did like a check-in with her to just make sure that she was okay. And then when she had caught her breath, then they restarted right. and did it again. And I was like, that is like when we need to teach consent and um, knowing that our body is our own and our words need to be valued and, and heard and respected. It all comes from this aspect of bo- like big body play of that if you get hurt and you say stop or you say stop because you are feeling like uncomfortable in the wrestling situation, it just stops and all participants know that. Right. Um, and how do you know what feels comfortable or uncomfortable to your body if you haven't had a vast amount of experience with your body being touched and kind of manipulated in ways that have no ulterior motive like four-year-olds who are wrestling um and you know what's yeah. too tight and and you know you you learn to express that either with your face or with your words to say hey that's too tight like i can't breathe get up or you push them up you know to say get off me and that it's respected without question mm-hmm. which is as it should be right and that's how you kind of practice those skills um and again, those life skills, like everything you learn through roughhousing is a skill that you will use throughout the rest of your life. I don't think there's a single bit of it that goes to waste. It's all no, no, I don't think so either. It's all valuable. Um, you know, and it's funny to me that when children can't find um, an, a person with which to tumble, and I'm sure you've seen this before, and I've heard parents comment to me about their own child. They'll say, well, he'll just, he'll just fall down and start rolling down the hill. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> if a child can't find a roughhousing partner, they will roughhouse all alone with the floor or a box Absolutely. or the sofa. I think everybody who has a child in a sofa has seen a child who will be on the sofa and they just roll off onto the floor because it feels good. It's bone jarring, but it feels good. So, um, mm-hmm. You know, if I push you off the sofa and won't let you get back up and you're screaming, that's aggression. That's a difference. But if we're taking turns rolling off the sofa, sofa onto each other on the floor and laughing and getting back up and doing it again, 
that's a bit body play. Yeah, it's so it's so important to have those those key differences um, between the two because um, yeah, they they are very different, uh, especially in the in the motivation that the kids have within the big body right, play. Right, right. Which is to collaborate and keep it going and. You know, the motivation behind aggression is generally control and retaliation. So they're, um, they're pretty easy to see if you, if you watch for it before just barging right in and, and making it stop. And then again, even if the intent was aggression or retaliation, what the inclination should be after making sure that there's no blood and that everybody's okay is to get them back into a state where they can roughhouse. That doesn't involve yeah. retaliation or control. Um, what happens? You know, and, and we haven't really touched on this, but there is a group of children who don't roughhouse well because they don't understand intention. The children that if you bump against them, they feel like you struck them. They want to hit you back always because they don't understand the intention of why yeah. their body was touched. Mm-hmm. Um, those children need a lot of coaching, like a lot of coaching to learn how to handle having body contact that was not meant to be aggressive. They have to learn how to tell the difference in a touch that was non-threatening so that they don't try to retaliate every time someone touches their body. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah, there's definitely is a... a level of skill um, <laughs> that is required to, to mediate and to scaffold the children who are struggling with, with the big body play. What are your thoughts on, on mixed ages as well as body sizes? I know you mentioned going down on your knees, um, which just for the, the part of, if you're throwing someone, they have less air to go down before they hit right, the ground. Right. And if you're, <laughs> if you're on your knees than standing. So yeah. What, what do you, what do you feel about size differences as well as ages? Um, I think that children generally will self-handicap to account for the age or the size differential if they're used to playing together often. If it's a brand new group of mixed age children, especially if more of them are older, stronger, bigger, and maybe only one or two are smaller, Um, I would probably stay closer just to see how they're navigating, interacting with each other and to see if I needed to model for them or coach them and how to be more productive in their play. But in my experience, um, children will make those accommodations kind of on their own. I mean, I even remember when my boys were younger and my nephews were, my two nephews were older than my boys and then my daughter was the youngest and they would make a circle, the four boys, with my daughter around on the inside. And she said, you know, they would just kind of throw me around. And I said, and then what happened? She said, I finally got big enough to start throwing them around. Um, but when they threw, you know, what she called throwing her around, they still did very weakly compared to how strong they actually were at the time. Because her oldest cousin, when she was four, he was like nine. He could have easily dominated her if he had wanted to, but he, he didn't. So those are the kinds of things that I would look for, um, for children who are in a mixed age, mixed size 
group, I think there's always a fear that because you're young or small, you're weak. And again, you know, that's not the case. Being young and small does not equate to weakness. It's just your physical stature in your chronological age. It doesn't mean that you're not strong or confident or capable or know how to use your body. Um, and just because you're big and strong doesn't mean you're mean or that you're, you know, going to lay on the other children so they can't breathe. We make presumptions about children that sometimes I think we need to give them a chance to demonstrate what their intentions are before we kind of rush to conclusions. And then if we see that they're not handling the mixed age size differential well, then we need to step in and coach them through it. But, um, you know, I've had teachers tell me stories since Big Body Play came out of, I remember this woman at a conference once told me that she had playground duty for an after school program. And there were kindergartners through fifth graders all on the playground and that the kindergartners were um, playing chase, I guess, chasing each other. And the fifth graders who were boys wanted to play as well, but they got down on their knees voluntarily and they chased the kindergartners yeah. on their knees. And she said, how did they know to do that? Like, I was so proud of them. I didn't even have to tell them to. <laughs> and I thought, no, because they wanted to play with those children. And they knew that part of that being able to play with them was holding back. How can I make my size smaller and closer to the size and speed of a four-year-old? Well, I'll just get down on my knees and that will kind of equalize us. And they did it automatically. So, yeah. You know, so, it was so true. easy, like all of our jobs would be easy if all children just naturally did those things, but they don't. I mean, that's what adults are for, right? To help coach children through the, the parts of life they don't navigate well on their own. That's, that's our job is to notice those difficulties and coach them through till they can build enough skill to then, you know, keep going independently. So I don't think it's a problem when we yeah. need to do that with their big body play as well. Yeah, I find that the, the mixed age groups, there's lots of respect of the older ones towards the little ones. And likewise, um, of course, you'll have some children who will exert more power to feel like super strong. But usually, yes, yeah, exactly what you say. Like they'll, um, they'll wrestle like at a quarter strength or just something to get keep the play going because that's, that's the aspect that they want to go to. That's their motivation is to get to fi have a fun time and to play. And if they just throw them to the ground, the play is right. done. And so it's really interesting to see that it makes age groups play. Yeah, and that, that overall motivation is to keep it going as long as possible. And, you know, if we're all playing king of the hill or I guess in your case, king of the snowdrift, and I keep throwing everybody <laughs> down and I never let anybody throw me down, pretty soon I'm not going to have anybody to play with because the other children will get tired of it. And they'll go make another game uh -huh. and play it further down the road. They'll leave me all alone. And I'll typically don't want to be alone. So I have to figure out that if they're going to play with me, I have to let them throw me down the hill too. I can't always be the king. Exactly. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I guess I just have um, one last question for you. I really appreciate the time that you've given me today. Um, so it's a little bit different for me wrestling in the forest um, a lot more hazards in terms of like, is there a stick? Is there a stump? Right. Is there, are you close to a tree with like a branch on it? Is it, are there rocks around? 
But if you're not in the forest that you're at home or you're in like a playground situation, how can we organize the environment to just to keep the play safe from a structural standpoint? Um, you know, it's helpful if you have an area that has some kind of shock absorption on the ground, um, which might be pebbles. It might be sand. It might be some commercial, you know, poured in place surface so that there's some shock absorption is of course more helpful if you're inside like in a house than anything with a sharp edge, of course, needs to be pushed out of the way. And if there's even tumbling mats that could be put on the ground or on the floor to help soften any of that bone jarring being, you know, and again, it's not always children throwing other children to the ground. Children like to throw themselves to the ground. Um, but shock absorption certainly helps. Um, teaching children when they're outside, like how to jump properly. Children love to jump out of things, out of swings. They love to jump off of rocks and off of stumps. And I'm sure in the forest you see children who like to jump as well. Teaching children how to bend their knees when they land, you know, to jump and land and bend their knees and then spring back up helps them play more safely um, that way. Having a barrier, you know, like your children drew out with the pine straw to kind of indicate the area that it's safe to play inside of is good for children. Um, play around settings that are more open areas, maybe less playground-like and more park-like where there's more just kind of open area to, to tumble or roll around in. Um, helps promote body play playgrounds that are too structured that have too much equipment on them are very hard for children to, to rough house in or, or navigate their independent play. You know, it's hard to make up an impromptu game of chase when there's nowhere to run. <laughs> it's just easier. To do exactly. Yeah. <laughs> have big open spaces. So for teachers who are in settings that don't have a lot of big open spaces, try to find some space that you can allot for that type of play, even if it's for just a period of time in an overall outdoor play period. Maybe you're going outside for an hour and for 20 minutes, you just carve out a place that you mark off with jump ropes on the ground or, you know, tape or chalk and say, here's where we can, Rough house, if it's wrestling, if it's, um, and again, I think wrestling is the most common form of rough housing, what we see children love to do and, and try to do, but there's lots of other impromptu games that children play. I've seen children line up like a train with their hands on each other's shoulders in a long line, and they just push forward until everybody falls down like dominoes, and then they get back up and face the other way, and they do it again. So to do that, you would need space to fall down and, you know, have children hold their arms out on either side, front and back, make sure they have enough room around them. And then once you've determined we're in a safe enough area, then we can play this way. And it might be that in 20 minutes, it's going to go back to being an area that's used for something else. But early childhood teachers are flexible, right? That's, that's a, a value that, um, I know I expect every early childhood teacher to have and everyone I've ever had who was successful in the career had enormous flexibility to make this kind of impromptu accommodations for to then help the environment meet what the children needed it to be at any given time and place. Very true. Yeah. Um, definitely have to be quick on your feet in terms of if an uh, idea has sprung up within the, the right, right. you're teaching and how to facilitate it and, and 
in, in a safe way. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, thank you so very much for talking to me. Um, I've, I've learned a lot, which is so great on a topic that I'm already passionate about. I was so excited to learn, learn from you. If someone who is listening, one of the listeners, is interested in your work, which is fantastic, and I highly recommend for those people who are listening and you're on the fence, if, if you're like, oh, well, maybe I should get the book. I think you definitely <laughs> should get the book. <laughs> Um, where where would they be able to find your work? Um, if someone wants to go to my Big Body Play website, which is www.bigbodyplay.com, there's a link there to purchase the book from our um, National Association who published the book. It's also available on Amazon. Just be careful on Amazon of the prices people sell books for it's you know an independent marketplace and sometimes I see the book um you know at a reasonable price which is great but sometimes I'll see um one of my books for sale for like $250 and I think oh that's so crazy I hope nobody pays that <laughs> it's a good book but it's not a $250 yeah. book it has to be a first edition of like <laughs> war and peace but um does it's probably the the quickest ways either through the national association which is just naeyc.org but again i have a link off of my website to it or on amazon either one those are probably the two most convenient ways to get it 